Hi. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming on a Saturday morning where normal people would be hungover and still in bed. You are all here to talk about communism and art. Um, it's a real pleasure to introduce a talk from Greg Shillette. And again, thinking about the timing of Greg's work, particularly uh, on using art as a means to disrupt the everyday and seeing uh, his own writings as a user's manual for that kind of uh, disruptive project, I think is incredible when you think that lots of the work that you were doing was sort of pre-2008 financial crisis. So repping the left before it was cool and um, being about 10 years ahead of the rest of us. Um, those are things I think you should listen out for. After they both do their talks, we'll have a mixed q and I'll probably kick off with a couple of questions first. So yeah, I'd like to welcome Greg to the stage. So I'm ready to start the revolution. I don't know. This, that's pretty amazing. Thank you, Jody. And thank you, everybody, for being here this morning, and Juha and other people for inviting me. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about practices that I've actually been involved with as an artist, as, a, as, a, as an organizer, and an activist, and try to put it in a little bit of a theoretical framework. So I'll be doing a little reading, and then I'll kind of give a, a slideshow. I think of this as a kind of sandwich. And one of the topics I want to focus on is uh, something I call bear art, or that the, the bear art world, and I'm stealing here from Agamben, to suggest that we actually are in a very demystified state now in the cultural sector, in the high cultural sector. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, the art market is booming with estimated global sales topping 60 billion euros annually. Dozens of art investment funds and exchanges have popped up to offer advice to wealthy clients on the ins and outs of high cultural financial speculation. Even private banks are getting into the game. Just last fall, Mr. Ben Williams, a UK-based advisor at JP Morgan, described the current art investment frenzy as one of, quote, amazing prices on an exponential curve upwards over a short time, end quote. And yet something equally explosive and exponential is taking place within the art world's arena of ide ideological production. It's a critical disturbance that's riding the ruinous wave of 2008's global financial meltdown as much as the surge of nationalism, authoritarianism, and xenophobia following Brexit and the US presidential election in 2016. In short, the art world as a site of production for social meaning is being confronted with the growing political and economic challenges to its institutional structure, challenges often led by artists who are always in oversupply, though largely invisible. And I'm talking here about the majority of artists, not the, the few superstars that we, we sort of see sparkling out there. Um, it's led by artists, but its contagious descent is beginning to resemble an outright revolt. Therefore, despite the triumph of the art market, the past decade has witnessed a growing wave of museum boycotts, protests, occupations, and labor unrest. One could even say that the artistic activism is the signature characteristic of 21st century high culture, at least so far. And of course, the presence of this new wave of activism is not without precedence. 
Uh, Ash alluded to the fact that I'd been involved with these kind of practices for a very long time, and I could do a historical review, which I'm not going to do. It's not free of precedence, but it's, not also, uh, it's also not free of contradictions. For one thing, much of the 2008 post-Occupy art generation, uh, generation of artists, curators, even arts administrators, outwardly despise the flourishing art market and the 0.01% super, the super wealthy that it epitomizes. For another thing, certain groups of artists who were once forced to the margins, including people of color, LGBTQ and indigenous people, and those activists who belong to what I call the dark matter of the art world, are today openly calling for decolonization of high culture. This sometimes involves carrying out direct actions within major art museums and demanding substantial policy changes, including calling for the resignation of specific trustees by name. And I'll return to that in a minute. Still, it's important to bear in mind that the ideology of artistic production and consumption, at least within the Western art world, has for centuries imagined itself as exceptional and therefore set apart from capitalism and the sphere of politics. Nevertheless, this fantasy is melting into thin air, and the once vaulted realm of high culture is falling fast to earth. Here we arrive at another contradiction. On the one hand, the citadel of high art is being pried apart and exposed to the everyday world of social struggles, economic, per economic precarity, not that these were ever really absent from the art world, but they typically remained hidden within plain sight. On the other hand, the, act, the world that uh, art is descending into, the actual world, is a far cry from the socialist or communist utopia that was dreamt of by the early 20th century avant-garde. When, for instance, the Russian poet Mayakovsky proclaimed, the streets shall be our brushes, the squares our palettes. Instead, today we confront a global reality in which Radically asymmetrical access to income security and basic human needs are presented as inevitable trade-offs for an increasingly truncated version of democracy. And I think the last presentation made that absolutely clear. And where the financialization of everyday life, as the late Randy Martin lamented, reaches into the very fiber of our being, and also as uh, where Jody Dean vividly details a networked communicative ca capitalism robs us not only of our privacy, but also any genuine political solution to these circumstances. All of this, of course, has taken place as we witness the strident return of the authoritarian right, fascist ideologies, and at a moment when, with every grim uptick in the planet's median temperature, we draw closer to environmental calamity. Given today's circumstances, perhaps even Mayakovsky would have reversed course and called upon art to return to its romanticized pedestal. Still, even as art joins the commonplace world with its multiple unfolding catastrophes, catastrophes, and as art sheds its centuries-old ideological aura of privileged freedom and self-determination, it gains, in exchange, a front row seat to the contentious struggles surrounding how we might possibly rethink and rebuild society at a time of extreme crisis. Likewise, the very term art is radically shifting, twisting, inverting, as it undergoes an outright self-expulsion from itself, springing away from the familiar white cube sanctuary in order to occupy the uncertainty of the public sphere. 
I call this new cultural condition, again with apologies to Gammon, a bear art world. Bear art is an art in which high culture's professed autonomy and mystique is stripped away, and artistic production has been subsumed by the demands of network capitalism, including the dictate to be creative and always, like an artist, think outside the box, the creative economies, the creative class. Therefore, as artists and cultural workers, today we are there, we are confronted with a bare art world as it conspicuously is entwined with an equally unconcealed and unending capitalist crisis. And yet, as I stated before, a certain wave of artistic opposition is also visible on this overly lit stage. I want to show you some examples of this resistant activist art as it falls to earth, sometimes with a thud, but also with a new question to bear in mind. How would this politically engaged, often anti-capitalist, and always demystified bear art remain critically radical in a hypersaturated visual world populated by lolcats, or is it LOLcats, I'm not sure, doomsday preppers, and xenophobic frog memes? Seems like cats are a theme this morning. So lolcats, doomsday preppers, and uh, Pepe, Pepe the president. It's very interesting. Just in the last couple of weeks, the staff at New Museum, which is an institution that I belong to briefly, uh, founded by Marcia Tucker, and she was a real innovator. She was basically um, working at the Whitney Museum, much bigger institution, of course. She did an exhibition that was panned by critics, and she was fired. And instead of crawling under a rock, which most people do in the art world, and wait till the sun comes out and they can come out again, she said, fuck you, I'm going to create my own bloody museum. And she did. And she created the new museum, which was based on ideas of education and really turning the idea of the museum inside out. That was back in 1972. The museum's gone through a lot of changes. She left the museum. She's dead now. Uh, and it's become, I think, one of the hubs of a kind of global corporate art world that likes to pretend it still is oppositional, but it's really not. Okay. So new museum, and some of you may have been there, and, you know, and they, do, they do some good shows now and then. But what's really interesting is the staff, the working staff there decided they wanted to unionize. And uh, what the museum did in response, the, the new new museum, is hire a company called Adams, Nash, Haskell, and Sheridan. This is the director. This is just a staff person with unionizing buttons on it. And this company specializes in union busting. So what they immediately did was they transformed chunks of the staff from one level of, of staff up into like a more supervisory level so that they couldn't really be part of the union. This is their slogan. This is the company based in, I think it's in Kentucky. Yeah. Counter union campaigns, union avoidance training, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Nevertheless, the staff prevailed, and they uh, voted to have a union. Now, I don't know when it will actually be ratified and how that's going to work out, but it's, it's pretty amazing. So one example of a kind of rebellion that's taking place within the very infrastructure of the art world at this moment. After the 2008 election, a number of artists got together and called themselves Working Artists for the Greater Economy and the Greater Economy, WAGE. 
And they did all kinds of things, among other things, they did surveys to talk about how money is distributed, when it comes from governmental sources. And then they came up with the idea that you can be certified, meaning if you um, have an organization and you pay your artists fairly, then you get this wage certification. And what do I mean by fairly? It's complicated, but it means that some portion of the money you're getting from federal or state resources is going to artists to support uh, the work they do. That might seem really strange here in, in, in Europe, but artists are often told, uh, you know, you don't get paid, you have an exhibition. That is your payment. You're getting, you know, you're getting visibility. Of course, the problem with wage, that it, you know, the main problem is that uh, most of the art world in the United States is commercial, highly commercial, and not really uh, government subsidized. Nevertheless, they still represent an idea, a possibility that has spread and is beginning to kind of catch, catch on, at least in some sense. There's also the organization BFA, MFA, PhD, and they've also done surveys focusing more on the production side of the art world, looking at artists, what do they do, how many, where do they come from, what do they pay. An artist in the United States to get a degree at one of the top schools can end up in debt up to $80,000 in tuition uh, to get a master's of fine art degree, let's say, or even an undergraduate degree in some cases. That would be places like Columbia or Pratt or CalArts. You have to ask the question, when there are no real jobs for artists, what does that debt mean? What is that relationship to their production? Um, that's the question that this group, BFA, MFA, PhD, asks. And they've actually tried to do surveys and studies to see what percentage of artists, where do they come from, where do they go afterwards. Even proposing, instead of spending money on an MFA, maybe you should actually just spend that money on your own art career. We've seen a remarkable wave of occupations inside major art museums in New York City, especially. This is actually the Museum of Modern Art, where they're asking, uh, the demand was to have Larry Fink, who's on the board of directors, uh, step down from the museum. Larry Fink is head of BlackRock, and they're one of the largest holders, or maybe the largest holder, of student debt and other kinds of debt in, in the world. So basically asking, here you are in a major cultural institution supporting artists who are going into extreme debt in order to become artists, and yet you have someone on the board of directors who's profiting off of that very problematic. Now, I wasn't, I'm not going to do a big history thing, but I wanted to just put an element in there. This is uh, from 1972, and it is the Guggenheim Museum. Yvonne Rainier, the filmmaker and dancer, creating a demonstration and leading a conga line that she actually did down the Frank Lloyd Wright spiral ramp. This was in the wake of my former professor Hans Hacke's cancellation, the cancellation of his exhibition at the Guggenheim because his work was too political. Uh, many of you probably know the work, but it essentially focused on real estate investment in New York City, and he simply used public records to talk about the way real estate is held and uh, held through shell companies and, and sort of distributed. Um, and that, at the time, 1971-72, was considered just an, an alien thing within the museum. The curator who put that show together was fired, and the show, of course, was canceled. But demonstrations took place. Um, this was also the time when Art Workers Coalition, which was an organization that Haka, Lucy Lepard, and others organized, began to put pressure on the museums and asked for more equity for artists, 
more fair play, and so on and so forth, including things like the museums should have a wing dedicated to women artists or artists of color, or this museum should come out against the Vietnam War, or they should come out and talk about environmental catastrophe. This is 1970s, late 60s, 1970s, early 1970s. So. so there was a precedent, but for years there was very little of this activism going on in the art world, and then suddenly in the post-2008 period, younger people have picked up the ball. For example, Debt Fair, which is a group of artists who came out of Occupy in New York and began to talk about what it meant for artists to be going into extreme debt. Uh, they did a lot of different projects, and here again is one of these paradoxes, let's say. They were invited to be in the Whitney Biennial. This was, this was the last Whitney Biennial. So they created a sort of sheetrock wall, classic wall that's often produced by artists because when you don't become a superstar, what you do is you do installation work and you go to the museum and you put up exhibitions or you move artwork around or you work in a studio. So they sort of pulled away the sheetrock to show behind the structure many, many, many artists who would never have been invited into the Whitney Biennial, whose work would not be considered appropriate. And then they talked about the debt problem. Now, it's worth pointing out that they talk about the debt problem and Larry Fink at the Museum of Modern Art while they're showing in the Whitney Museum. They didn't talk about the debt problem in relation directly to the Whitney Museum. So there are limits within this kind of new institutional critique. Let's give you a close-up here. This exhibition, though, also had a number of performances. These were impromptu. I'm sure the museum didn't really know what was going on. And just a few weeks ago, actually, sorry, late 2018, um, losing track of time here, there was another interesting phenomenon that took place. First, at the Whitney Museum, the staff wrote a letter to the director saying, we want you to uh, ask one of the board members to step down. Uh, and the board member is uh, Warren B. Canders, and he runs a company called Safariland. Right? So he's on the board of directors of the Whitney. His company is called Safariland. Safariland makes non-lethal weapons, including the tear gas canisters that were used on the border against the so-called migrant caravan. You may have heard about this, Central, mostly Central American people coming up, trying to sit across the border, at least demonstrating their presence at the Mexican border with the United States. Uh, the president sent troops in, and tear gas was used against these individuals. And this man, Canders, uh, actually owns a company that made those, made those canisters. So the staff of the museum said, we want this person to step down, which is pretty unprecedented, given that they're not unionized at the Whitney, and they could easily all be fired. So far, the Whitney has refused to, to do that. So it... Uh, Occupation took place uh, about in December of the museum, in the lobby of the museum, drawing uh, the uh, exhibition, the Andy Warhol exhibition. So we have Chairman Mao looking out over this. And I brought my sketch pad and did like some quick sketches of the thing as if it was sort of journalistic cartooning. So I'll just show you a few images. Getting to the museum, the subway, decolonize this place sticker there, preparing for the intervention, 
the museum was put in a complicated position. People coming in with banners obviously meant to demonstrate during the middle of the day. Uh, they decided, I think, uh, wisely to let people enter. And then once inside, it took the form of a kind of classic open mic or people's mic and general assembly. Except for one other element, which is the demonstrators brought a, a huge pot of sage and set that alight. And so the lobby started to fill up with this aromatic smoke as opposed to tear gas. And pretty soon, and of course, you know, while this is going on here, people are lining up to get their tickets and go into the museum over there. Uh, and the staff was trying to figure out how do you manage all this, and the security people were trying to figure out how do you manage this. People got up and spoke. They spoke about indigenous rights. They spoke about Lenape, who are the native people that used to live in uh, New York. And... Pretty soon, the place was so filled with smoke, and the people who were coming to see the shows were complaining, and they were having a hard time getting memberships. <laughs> the museum did something, I think it was actually kind of a clever move on their part. They did not call the police. They called the fire department. And the fire department came in and sort of said, okay, we have to you know, see what that is. It could be dangerous, we put it out. It was really uh, a sort of attempt to get the demonstration to end. The police stood back. That may not happen again. The group that did this is planning on additional interventions and they say they're going to be stepping up the pressure on the museum in a campaign that's gonna be beginning this week, I believe. One of the things they also did was make some really terrific art projects, taking Andy Warhol's imagery and combining it with the critique of the museum. And you can go online, go to decolonize this place and look at some of this work. Oh, and you can also find out that Safariland has a 10% off, a $10 off program right now in case you need any sort of non-lethal weapons. The other project uh, that I'll talk about is one that I've been involved with for quite a few years called Gulf Labor Coalition. And Gulf Labor started back in 2010 when the United Arab Emirates, when Abu Dhabi decided they wanted to have their own Guggenheim Museum. This, this is my friend Pablo Halgara. Um, the problem with having a museum in Abu Dhabi, as some of you may know, is that the work conditions, the labor conditions in that part of the world are horrendous. Jiha, I'll go back for you. <laughs> um, so this is a projection onto the Frank Lloyd Wright building, of course, by the group, the Illuminators, and they have this sort of big ass truck with a gigantic projector on top. Uh, the reason being that it, it, you can get arrested if you, you know, actually set something like that up permanently so they can kind of drive away when the police come. But the idea in Abu Dhabi was to take this island called Sajid Island and really terraform it in a kind of truly science fiction way into a place for the 0.01% to live. 
my friend Andrew Ross, who's also part of the collective, has pointed out this is really like a real estate concept for the very wealthy, where they also will have New York University, which is already in the area, to send their kids to, and then all these kind of wonderful cultural uh, centers. So the Louvre has already opened uh, a branch there, and the Guggenheim was also planning to open a branch, built, of course, by Frank Gehry, the architect. And it would have been an enormous building, his largest probably ever. This is the model. This is another vision of it. You see this sort of dome-shaped structure. That's the Louvre, and that has been constructed and completed. Some of these pictures I took when we, we did a field trip there. Saudi Island means the island of happiness, but it's anything but a happy place for most of the people who work there. The kafala system is such that when you, uh, when you get a job there, if you come from Pakistan or India or the Philippines, you're often paying a large fee just to be recruited to go there. That fee or is supposedly for your visa and you're paying a recruiter has to be paid back. So you arrive, you think you're gonna be making one amount of money and living under certain conditions. Turns out the wages are much less, the working conditions are terrible. You have to pay back this fee, which can take up to two or three years of your salary that you are planning to send back to your family, and your passport is often confiscated, so you actually can't go anywhere. Don't try to organize. It's completely illegal to even speak up. Nevertheless, workers in Abu Dhabi and other parts of the UAE go on strike all the time. They go on wildcat strikes. So the group that we formed wasn't really trying to sort of lead the workers to do anything. They were doing their thing. Our project was to get the art world to pay attention to its responsibility. Basically to say to the Guggenheim, if you're going to build and give a brand to this part of the world, and you're going to build this museum, you should build this with the absolute best labor conditions that we would expect in the United States, in Europe, and so forth, and become a model you know, show the world that you actually can do this in, a, in, this, in this region. So we had many meetings, Gulf Labor Coalition, when I say we, Gulf Labor Coalition is the group that formed uh, Walid Rod, myself, Andrew Ross, a number of other people. We had meetings directly with the, with the director of the museum and with the staff. This picture was actually taken at the headquarters of the Guggenheim. Uh, it looks like a scene out of Dr. No, you know, Guggenheim spreading all around the world. Uh, but we would meet at their table, and they would, you know, they're good liberal people, and they would say, well, you know, we, we agree with you. We think it's terrible, but we can't do anything about it. That's the conditions that are going on there, as if they weren't actually offering their brand uh, for a lot of money to UAE. So after we were frustrated with the direct negotiations, and we had also called a boycott, which got some news press for us, we decided to take uh, other action including something called 52 weeks of Gulf labor, which meant that every week someone would produce a different work of art intervention to uh, call attention to the problem. And there's been a lot of Human Rights Watch and other NGOs have done a lot of work on the region. Uh, Waleed took this picture. I took this picture. This is, this is what they showed us when we did visit uh, it, this is kind of like ideal workers' housing. It looks like a very nice prison camp. And, you know, okay, this was not too bad. It was clean. It was miles and miles from anywhere. If you decided you wanted to just go out to do something, forget it. You know, it's, you're in the desert. This, of course, is not where most of the workers are being housed. There's 
other contractors, subcontractors, sub-subcontractors, where the workers are in horrendous conditions, and these are not so great, really, when you get right down to it. So during this 52 weeks of Gulf labor, people did different kinds of projects, and one of them that emerged, I'll talk about in a minute, but I want to talk just a minute about one I created with my colleague, Matthew Greco. So we sort of thought about this, and this was around the holidays in 2015, so around the Christmas uh, Hanukkah holiday. So the museum uh, in New York likes to bring out their little tchotchkes for your Hanukkah tree, for your Christmas tree, whatever, which includes this little version of the Frank Lloyd Wright building that you can buy. And what we did was take and make a 3D print based on the pictures that I had taken there before of our own little workers' housing. We packaged it up uh, precisely the same way that the museum had done. We even put a UPC code on it so if someone scanned it, it would actually register. But of course, inside, we had a, the story of what I've been telling you about the kafala system, about resistance to it. And then we headed down to the Guggenheim's gift shop. So I'm just going to... This is the sonic part of my presentation. So essentially, we uh, shop-dropped the products inside the gift shop, which is the opposite of shoplifting, of course. Projects made uh, popular by the yes-men or the predecessors. Uh, what was really strange was we left, you know, we left the packages there. We put some in the gift shops that are actually upstairs in the museum as well. And about a week later, people said, oh, yeah, you know, they're still in the shop. And we were like, Wow. You know, do you think the workers are actually reading this in, in solidarity, or did they just not realize that this is an intervention? Maybe they even sold some of them because we had the UPC code on it. So eventually they were swept out of sight. This was one of so number of many projects that were created to sort of call attention to the situation uh, in Abu Dhabi and with the Guggenheim. Then the other part of this is a group that emerged, a kind of faction that emerged out of Gulf Labor Coalition as part of this 52 weeks called the Global Ultra Luxury Faction, or Gulf. And Gulf was much more invested in direct action. So they did a couple of interventions into the museum and left. Um, in 2015, we were invited by Okwian Weser, the, the curator, to be part of his Venice Biennale. And that's 
Gulf Labor Coalition, not Gulf, the faction. Uh, we were invited to be involved, and we actually asked him for money to go do research in the region, to actually send people back to Abu Dhabi and to India and other places to talk with workers. And we eventually worked that out, and we did some presentations at the, at the, uh, at the late in the summer, actually, at the Biennale. But we also decided on May Day in 2015 that we would do a spectacular intervention at the museum in New York. And in preparation, there was some little bit of training that went on behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is not far from the Guggenheim. And this included um, this situation, which I'll explain the logic of it in a minute. One of my former students actually is the woman behind the wheelchair, but the woman in the wheelchair is, is actually not disabled. What she is, is sitting on a banner. And we entered the museum, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, she leapt off of the chair, and the banner came out in the main atrium at the base of the Guggenheim Museum. I'm sure you know the space. Simultaneously, flyers came down from above where people had been positioned, talking about May Day, different languages, talking about the relationship of the Guggenheim to the petro industry, petrodollar industry in the Middle East. But then the security immediately tore the banner apart. And it seemed like the action was over, time to leave, we made our point, but instead we actually sat down and decided to occupy the museum. Now this was during a, an exhibition, so there were lots of people there going to see, I think it was the last day of an exhibition that was up. Outside people were standing in solidarity with banners, in fact, I don't have a picture, but the guerrilla girls were there with banners. What the museum decided to do was to essentially not have anyone else come into the museum. They closed the museum. So anybody that was inside filtered out. They just kind of left. And pretty soon, after like a couple of hours, we were pretty much alone. The guards, us, we got up, we started walking around the museum. I mean, I tell you, you want to see a show without a crowd, you know? <laughs> it was great. Uh, for a moment, though, they did have the police come, and the police came, and they whispered in our ear and said, well, we're just waiting for, you know, the wagon to come. Uh, as an Irish-American, I know what that means, the paddy wagon, you know. Um, and then they left. And it was pretty clear, because we held our ground, that the museum doesn't want pictures of artists being dragged out of the museum in handcuffs. Now, the, the other side of this was several of us, myself included, had tickets to go to Venice the next day. And had they arrested us, it would have been kind of a, a little bit of a disaster for us personally. Uh, ultimately, we stayed till the end of the day, and we called it a victory, and we left, and then we went to Venice. And this was the exhibition that Oakley put together, All the World's Futures. Um, Gulf Labor had a sort of banner that we created for inside the Arsenale, but Gulf Global Ultra Luxury Faction also arrived for the opening and had some plans of its own. This is the sort of silly banner we made, including these plans, which working with a group called Sally Docks, which is a squat collective in Venice, planned to sort of do a water landing and occupation of the Peggy Guggenheim Museum, which is on the Grand Canal. And so we acquired some little boats and jumped in them with our banners and other materials 
and headed over to the Peggy Guggenheim and leapt off onto the loading dock and took over the museum. This was the same day that the museum uh, was hosting the American contingent of the biennial later that evening, the opening. And so they were very eager to get rid of us. So we were there for a couple of hours. Um, we tried to get inside the museum and they locked us out, but we were on the back side, quite visible to the Vaporetti that were going by. Of course, at a certain point, again, we were quite worried. But if you look carefully, you'll see one of the soldiers is saluting us. And we realize, oh, it's an art project. <laughs> After a while, we finally got the museum to agree to our demands, which is what we want to meet with the board of directors, not with the, you know, the director, Richard Arms. We want to meet with the board of directors because we feel those are the people that will really make a change. And they finally agreed because, of course, they wanted to get us out of there before the opening. And we did a sort of, you know, exhibition shot. And that seemed really great. So a lot of things were looking good. This meeting would take place in New York in a few weeks. Meanwhile, there was another project that was part of 52 Weeks, or sort of a spin-off of 52 Weeks that I was working on with some of my students. And I'll show you one more sort of, uh, sort of video before we wrap this up. This was the precarious workers' pageant, and that took place also at the end of the Biennale, but it was, of course, not officially part of the Biennale. So... Oops, let's see. So this is groups of people, including trade unionists who came from New York City to do this performance piece that we organized called Precarious Workers Pageant with elements that looked like Guggenheim the Guggenheim will be located in the cultural district of Sayadat Island, the capital of the United Arab Emirates. Designed by internationally known architect Frank Geary, the museum will house its own major modern and contemporary art collection. Well, first I should thank Guggenheim for so generously bringing art and culture to the Middle East and have you all look at other side of the story with me. the Venice Biennale, All the World's Futures, uninvited, in order to make connections between global capital, high art, and the precarious labor conditions in Abu Dhabi, where South Asian migrant workers are hired in the thousands through the kafala system, denying them basic rights of decent living conditions, self-representation, fair wages, and freedom of movement. Yeah. yeah. 
No dignity. Yeah. yeah. Hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah. Slavery. Yeah. yeah. This was not free. The precarious workers' pageant took place during the Venice Biennale on the evening of August 7th, 2015. It was not part of the official event. It was instead a public procession staged in solidarity with migrant workers on Saudi Island in Abu Dhabi. We are the precarious workers' pageant. We are here to protest the Guggenheim Museum in Abu Dhabi. The Guggenheim is exploiting immigrant workers in Abu Dhabi. We are artists. We stand with the workers building museums. We stand with the workers building the palaces to the gods of oil and finance. For the early 20th century avant-garde, abstraction was a way of pointing to a different kind of society, of breaking with the oppressive traditions of the old society. That contemporary artists and architects use the vocabulary of abstraction, and borrow from the avant-garde tradition is quite obvious, and it's happening in a very apparent way on Sajid Island, where the new Guggenheim Abu Dhabi is being built. But what we want to do is call attention to the fact that you can't disconnect the utopian vision of the early avant-garde and its interest in abstraction from those shapes and those forms without doing violence to the concept. Once liberated, these freed abstract shapes were carried over canals and streets in a cacophonous procession that passed by the Peggy Guggenheim collection and finally came to a stop at the Academia Plaza. It was there that these emancipated elements were reconstructed into a temporary public commons. Inside this space of solidarity, a group of speakers addressed the struggle for social justice that is faced today by all precarious workers. As these structures get built, as these structures get built, there's hundreds of migrant workers, there's hundreds of migrant workers, This video was made by Sataria Areshlu, and also a graduate of our social practice program in New York. 
Uh, just to wrap up the story and then conclude, the Guggenheim, uh, we began to meet with them, we began to talk with them. We actually had people coming who showed them contracts that had been explored in the Middle East, in that region, how you can actually do this, right? They kept saying, we can't do this, it's impossible. We're so small, we can't possibly give workers the fair shake. Here's the contract, here's how you do it. There was a meeting that took place, the International Labor Organization was there, Human Rights Watch. Everything looked very, very positive, and then suddenly the Guggenheim broke off all negotiations with us. It was a little bit like Amazon, you know? One minute they were gonna be in New York, psh, next minute they're gone, no more talking. Um, so that kind of put everything on hold. The organization is, our organization is kind of on hold at the moment. One of the reasons, of course, is the collapse in oil prices, and I think the Guggenheim's kind of in a stasis for the moment but I don't suspect that's gonna to last too long. I think they will revive it. And they're still doing all kinds of cultural projects in the Middle East. We did do a final action where the illuminator projected our complaints onto the museum and onto one of the board of trustees own apartments. So I'm just gonna read one little final bit and that's gonna be it, a kind of conclusion. The speed of networks, the speed of network finance capital, the rush of data, the demanding agency of living as work and art as life. Just how does one describe a world that resembles itself down to the smallest detail with little or no space for metaphor, error, or dark matter? Like a simulation that has always already passed the Turing test, there are no more messages from beyond, only more of the same, because everything is now directly in front of us. It's not that we cannot tell the difference between art and life, it's that there is no difference. Lacking shadow or depth, the forces of production are repeatedly unconcealed, just as our inability, inability to be shocked by this reoccurring fact is replayed over and over and over. Still, as I hope my illustrations have demonstrated today to some degree, Resistance may have its paradoxes, its painful paradoxes, but resistance is not futile. Thank you. Mm -hmm.